going to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Park. Happy Valentine's Day. And welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Turn off the Now, is this the type of mood music you're into? Or? This is Teddy, right? Yeah. Are you playing it for me? Oh, I'm playing it for you, Barry. Am I supposed to take my shirt off? How does this work? Well, I can't... take a shower. You know, I can't bring women in here and overtly flirt with them. I can with you, though. <laughs> Watch it. I'll grab you under the table here. You're lucky there's a wall between us. But get ready for this. Too hot, not too hot. I don't want you know second degree burns. <laughs> it's getting hot here, boys and girls. Woo! See, this sort of music, if because it is Valentine's Day and I got in that mode of thinking. Like, I can't play this in the bedroom because it's too <laughs> it makes me laugh. It makes me laugh. Maybe too over the top. Yeah, it's like this. And it's so like ridiculously man, like, come here, woman. <laughs> Turn off the lights. Rub me down in some hot oils, baby. Ugh. <laughs> uh, but it is Valentine's Day. It is. And I think, I think people take this day way too seriously. It's six weeks after Christmas. I know. Okay? I mean, that's the part of it that always bothered me. You go all out for Christmas... And then six weeks later, it's like, what have you done for me lately? Right. <laughs> We've done a, done a lot for you, woman. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's No, and it is. It, it's a, Even in this new era of gender fluidity, and it's still a female holiday, really. No, yeah. Gender fluidity takes a back seat any time that the females want the advantage in the relationship. Well, you brought up a story as I was uh, sitting in the other day, I think on... Uh, Tuesday, yeah, yesterday, um, where Harvard banned all oh, yeah. same-sex clubs or same-gender yeah. clubs. Yeah, ge- same-gender clubs were outlawed at Harvard, banned at Harvard, and the feminists complained, so they made a single exception to the rule, mm. and the exception to the rule of no gender-only clubs was female gender-only clubs would be fine because they were historically oppressed. Male-only gender clubs, as the historic oppressors, those were unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Yeah, you're right. I think somebody said try telling that to a black man. Yeah, <laughs> tell that to the black fraternities. <laughs> oh my goodness! It's and then I saw another story today that a free speech class, like it was, I think the official title was Anthropology 202. Or I remember that. Yeah. And uh, the Weekly Standard had a story on this. Where it was a free speech class, and it was the point of the class was to say, are there any arguments against free speech other than you hurt my feelings? Right. Which is actually a great discussion to have. Because I worry some things we 
luckily get to take for granted, mm. like the freedom to speak our minds and believe what we wish. Uh, if you take that for granted too long, you forget how to defend it against what can be good arguments at times. Now, I don't buy those arguments, but anyway, this professor, to make a point, said, is it worse to call a black man the N-word or to punch a black man? And the But he didn't say the N-word. No, he, he did. used it. He used the real word. He used the real word. Yeah. You know, and I'm fine, like, if it's our business here. Yeah. You know, there's this whole thing about, well, fire in a crowded theater means there can be con- you know, conditions on speech. Like, no. Number one, that was like a footnote in a dissent where the court upheld the freedom of speech. Right. Uh, number two, it's not a speech issue. It's a property rights issue. I can't yell fire in a theater because I'm when I buy a ticket to a theater, there's an implicit agreement well, that I don't disrupt well, what's going on. And typically, theaters are on private property, so government exactly. restrictions don't apply. But but the, the question is, I mean, you really, you're arguing two different things. One is the philosophical, is there a limit mm-hmm. to freedom of speech? Should there be a limit to freedom of speech? The other is the legal well, is true. that you know? Is there a limit to the freedom of speech? There surely is, because uh, libel and slander laws are upheld on a regular basis. Defamation laws. Yes. Um, there's there's even some instances where prior restraint on speech is is deemed acceptable. Um, you mentioned yelling fire in a crowded theater. Well, in, on private property, exactly. there can be many restrictions on speech. You, you, uh, FCC regulated airway. So, so we accept that there are, in fact, legal restrictions. The philosophical mm-hmm. question, I think, is what the professor was trying to explore. Right. Should there be? Well, and it reminds me of a great Christopher Hitchens <coughs> essay called A Shoe the Taboo. Yeah. And he was laying out historical taboos uh, that were historical slurs. Right. And he was going through the, you know, the old white one, like Paula or Pollock, which would apply to me. And you can come up with all the, you know, called people honky, cracker. You can throw slurs against white people all day. And actually, I'm not complaining about that. That's a lot of fun. Why complain about that? I love calling my friends, shut up, honky. <laughs> it's a funny I word. I don't think I've ever purposefully called someone a honky. Well, I never but... say it in, like it's, oh, it's really going to sting. Yeah. Oh, come on. Well, and, and, and look, there is... There is an argument. I understand the student's side of that argument, which was when you call someone a honky or a cracker or any other white slur, um, historically, white people in this country haven't been oppressed. And so it doesn't have the same sting because there's been really no group that's ever accumulated significant power that's used honky and cracker in a way that damages the prospects of advancement for white people or the prospects of uh, succeeding in a given task even. Whereas, on the flip side, almost every other racial group has been oppressed at right. some point. Now, the Italians, the Irish, that's, all, that's the, the Jews, that's the obvious exception when people say, oh, no, when the Italians came over, they were hated. Oh, when the Irish came over, they were hated. When the Jews came over, they were hated. Yeah, but they've assimilated into the greater, the greater being known as whiteness. Right, and so and and I do sound like a liberal when I start talking about this because I am not a free speech purist. Well, and but here's where uh, Hitchens is going through this list of slurs that had to do with Italians, that had to do with the Jews, and he was listing off all those you know <coughs> terrible slurs, at, like literally pointing out in an academic way. This is what people used to say. Then he said the N word on Hardball with Chris Matthews. He said right after he said that word, the cameras went off. Somebody pulled off his microphone, lapel microphone. And said, you're never going to be invited back. Right. And he's like, what? Yeah. I'm pointing out, it's like George Carlin, the seven words you can't say. Like, I'm yeah. just quoting these words. And how are we supposed to even know these words if we can't even say the words? 
the word had to have been said once. Yeah, I guess, I guess the way I look at it is, and this is why I say I'm not a free speech purist, if we could blink and do away with the N-word forever from history and, and current use, right. would you? And the answer is yes, uh, I would. Because it's it's divisive, it causes pain and and drama, uh, uh, you know, drama wherever it's mentioned. Uh, traumatic experiences follow. Uh, it brings up centuries of of hurt. Why, you know, why why allow that why to continue to exist? Up. Right. And so, why would you not do away with work? The reality is, like the nuclear bomb, like dynamite. You can't like like a bell. You can't unring it. You can't uninvent it. Right. You can't make it go away. So the question is, what do we do with it? Well, what, and then what do we do with anything like that? Well, and I was watching. Uh, it was Patrice O'Neill in an episode of The Green Room with mm -hmm. Paul Provenza, and he said, "I'm never going to get reparations. Black people are never going to get reparations. I'm not asking for that. What we got is the freedom to say whatever the hell we want." <laughs> and he kept calling Bob Saget the N word, <laughs> and it was hysterical. It's true. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some things that that uh, you know we we can't write all the historical wrongs right and so sometimes we offer an exchange a hall pass Though, on certain issues i also i am a bit of a purist like in a classroom setting where it's clear the professor isn't trying to necessarily be cruel he's not calling anybody that name he's is being provocative with the, the question itself is provocative but it's important to answer and entertain provocative questions but i don't know that you have to be a purist to adopt that position i adopt right. this well, I, I agree with you and i'm not what you would call a free speech pierce. Okay. I recognize the 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 just limitations on free speech in an ordered society. Okay. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree with that. It's just that once you start controlling words, you can start controlling ideas. And it's once it's it, as long as it's etiquette, it's being polite, yeah. it is taking into context your social setting, fine. And I respect that. And I don't curse on air. I might push the envelope in terms of topics on occasion, but I don't curse on air. Damn it! Because <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you guys on here today. Well, there, I mean, there's certain words. And this is what's funny to me. Certain words have the real the power to that sting. Oh, did you feel the vinegar? It's like, did you drink it down? And then they come, they go out. They're they're not as bitter anymore. They don't shock people as much. Um, but if you can't have an open discussion, and once words are now shutting off conversation. It's one thing when that is a, a, a social convention and people are just getting upset about certain red flag words that you can't say. But then when it's starting to be forced on people by law, like certain words you can't say as well as certain words you're compelled to say. Yeah. I mean, we're getting into like the whole reason why we have freedom of speech. Because well, compelling, compelling speech is different. Uh, I, I am a purist on compelling right. speech. Uh, I'm even a purist down to you can't compel me to put my password into a phone. You know, that, that's forcing me to articulate an idea and to punch it and to do it on command for you. I, I am a free speech purist on that. I don't even think you should have to. And, and I recognize the law and I encourage people to comply with the law. I have a different idea of what the law is or should be than the Supreme Court. The law is you have to comply with a police officer's command to articulate verbally who you are. Right. Your okay. identity. That's something you have to provide. And if your identification is on, you're supposed to provide that. If it's not, you're supposed to tell them lawfully and, and honestly who you are. Right. Uh, I disagree with that. To me, in, in a free society, the police have the burden to figure out who you are. You might have warrants for your arrest. Mm -hmm. that, that's compelling incrimination. I think I'm, I am, you know, a six-foot white guy in a blue shirt and blue jeans. That's who I am, <laughs> you know, cop. Uh, but but the, that's not the law. 
And so the law does, in some instances, compel you to speech. And I, I am a purist on that. Yeah. On the other side, in terms of, of restricting speech and order, there are some things we give up in society in order, in order to have order. And one of those is certain abilities to say certain words and, and under certain circumstances. Well, then the, the whole conversation, the hang up on certain terms is, I think, besides the point, is can you discuss certain topics like adults? And I think that's gone out the window on at least a lot of college campuses. Now, I also feel like kids are getting a bad rap these days because of a few who just can't handle it. Uh, it's more than a few. I've seen the videos. I, I remember, gosh, what was it, a year or two ago on Yale's campus, one of the, the advisors, he's also a professor, but he was an advisor to some group, and I don't even remember what he said, but the people just went bananas, and there ended up hundreds of students surrounded this guy in a courtyard, and someone oh, was filming it. Do you remember yes, this? Yes, I remember that. And it was, I don't even remember what the issue was. It was that it was that minuscule and de minimis. But, but I do remember them surrounding him, and I thought, these are supposed to be the best and brightest. It's not easy to get into Yale. You don't accidentally get into Yale. No. You know, you, you could have a, a 1580 out of 1600 on the SAT, a perfect 4.0, and not even get a, a whiff of Yale if everything else doesn't look right on your application. So uh, these are not idiots. And and they were surrounding this guy in, in a totally illogical manner, totally not listening to reason, like small children. like It's almost like six-year-olds had gotten into college. Mob mentality. Yes, and it was very bizarre watching it. Oh, um, and then he held his hands up, right? <clears throat> and they they thought that was threatening. That's a threatening gesture. And then he said he he went he he pointed kind of like put his finger up to somebody and said, "Hold on, let me finish my thought." And she started screaming at him, came right up in his face. "I won't let you finish your thought. Your thoughts aren't worth finishing." And I thought, "Yale, huh? <laughs> uh, hundreds of people at Yale." And then they do this thing when they agree with somebody they start snapping snapping. oh Oh, my gosh it is the most infantile but you know what it is part of it is we infantilize our children yes and we we treat our 10 year olds like six year olds our 16 year olds like 10 year olds and then we wonder when they go to college at 18 why they act like 10 year olds yeah um and i don't want to even get into the what the infantilization of children does to young adults because it is destroyed it's terrible an entire i mean you're Eight years on either side of you is destroyed. Uh, down to, what are you, 30? 28? I'm 29. 29. 29. Yeah. All right, so from 21 to 37, nah, I don't want to say that far. I'd say four years on either side of you. It's just about destroyed. Uh, they're almost non-functioning. I blame the cell phone for most of that. Because oh, because they're always they're not actually interacting and having conversations with people. They're well, they're doing it online and they're connecting in in those ways. But uh, there's no need. You're always distracted, and I found myself very distracted. By uh, I mean, the smartphone came out in 2007. By 2010, it was widely adopted. Right. And so by 2014, the class of 2014, five years ago, high school seniors were the first people in society's history to leave completely unprepared for social interaction. Uh, face-to-face social interaction. When you go to college, you are um, the you are practicing the fulfillment of all your social training for the first 18 years of your life. And the bulk of that was from age 14 to 18. <sighs> the bulk of that was from age 14 to 18. That's when you've developed the, the your young adult personality. That's when you develop your habits of how to interact with people. Um, and and starting in 2014, we started sending freshmen to college who had no ability to interact. And it's only gotten worse. Because there are more applications than there ever were. People are more addicted to the smartphone. And so the class of 2018 or 19, whatever, uh, 2018 that's graduating this year, they've had smartphones since they were in fifth grade, sixth grade. 
these people are hopeless. They have no chance. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't think I've ever told you. I had one of these identity politics interactions while I was at Auburn. I can't remember the exact class. It might have been compared to politics, like politics and gender. So yeah. I'm the I'm the idiot who signed up for it. Well, but that's probably why your ratings with the 35-plus women are so high. Well, that and my voice. Well, I mean... They also... And my humility. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're the, doing. My humility, my vulnerability, <laughs> and women love insecurity, Baron. Oh, they, do they? They absolutely... They, they, they just flock to They it? adore it. <laughs> <laughs> they also like irony. Um, so <laughs> but I'm in this class, and I made a point, and it, for some reason we were in like a round table setting where yeah. we moved all the individual desks in a, a semicircle or a circle. And I'm talking across to my fellow students, and I said, what I try to do is not to see people's race and gender and all that, not to deny it completely, but... And, of course, that sends up, you don't see it. That You, you just say that because you're a privileged white guy. And I said, fine, let me try another bite at this. I try not to presume anything about somebody based on snap judgments. And my teacher kept insisting to me, but of course you do. Of course you do. What are the snap judgments you make? What are those snap judgments you make? Just out with it. I'm like, no. I have trained myself not to say that that is very bad information or incomplete information and i'm not talking about like statistical averages i'm talking about joey meet somebody and what does joey think of that person i've tried to train myself to not presume anything about that person i'm not perfect i mean but if somebody comes up to me and they smell like a sewer i mean i might recoil now i might also start thinking well why do you smell like a yeah you know but I, they the students in my class just kept telling me that's because of your identity group that you think that way. I'm like, wait, people can't be charitable and not presume because of their their racial <laughs> or economic class. Yeah, no, I mean the the reality is it, you are hit with trillions of bits of data on a daily basis. Yeah, it, it through your eyes, ears, nose, mouth, uh, and 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 sense of touch. Oh yeah, and the if touch. you didn't hey, touch is the best. If you did not. Um, if you did not discriminate, if you didn't use stereotypes as you made your way through the day, you would be in a state of paralysis before you, your feet hit the floor in the morning. See, but I don't even think about it. Uh, you me. don't because because there's you have evolved or or God gave it whichever way you want to do it uh, with the ability to make these calculations in real time in super yeah. fast settings. For example, not every tiger will kill you. True. Lots of tigers will just let you pet them and walk off. But if you're in the wild in an African savanna and a tiger walks up, what do you do? Or in Asia, wherever tigers are, what do you do? You run for the hills. I run you get the, the hell out of there. Not every bear will kill you. But if a bear wanders up into the campsite, you wander off. You know, you, you, mm. get, you get clear. Uh, because you have an idea in your mind, tigers kill and bears kill. Yeah. All right? Well, they do. Well, the question is, do you, well, they do some. Some don't. No, they do. In the wild, some don't. Some will sniff you and walk off and leave you alone. They're not hungry. They've, they've, for whatever. But what I'm saying is, you've developed a stereotype. You've developed an yeah. idea of and, what and that thing is. And it's, 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 it's an either an evolutionary technique or an instinctual technique, regardless of how you characterize well, it. No, but what it was, allows you to live. But what I was saying earlier yeah. is, uh, it's not that I don't think of the stereotypes or maybe these. These crude models I have right. of the world. I, I understand what you're saying. No, I just don't even think of other people. 
You don't even worry that. that yeah, I just get in my car. It's all about you. Do the radio. No, not even all about me. I'm just <laughs> oblivious. Like, do, 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 yeah. do, do. Well, and that's that's what my point is though. You have to be conscious that you have these, yeah. and it's not just you. Uh, everyone has these. There's 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 social uh, psychology studies that show people tend to favor people who look more like them. Oh, that's true. You know, uh, whether it's racial or even subracial. You know, get in. You know, it could be. Uh, you know, darker skinned people prefer darker skinned people, lighter skinned people, lighter skinned people, white people, white people. I mean, it's it's, it's you called know, homophily. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and there is a problem. You need to be aware of it, and 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 the problem is not enough people are. That that's my that's my thing hmm. because we're coming to the rescue of people who may not need to be come to the rescue of. You know, they, maybe maybe they need to fail a little bit. Mm. You know, but mm -hmm. we, but we think, oh, they're part of our sub... And so subconsciously, you have a bias built in to want to come to the rescue of these people. And and some people are better than others of evaluating things on an individual basis. That was the call of Martin Luther King. Yeah. Don't judge people based well, on their and, skin. Judge them based on who they are. And I always go back to this. He gave a sermon, I believe it was in 57, or it was called Loving Your Enemies. Yeah. And he said, it's the first thing. And this is after he quotes Gota, and he quotes Gandhi, and he quotes Jesus, and uh, he's incredibly erudite and like eloquent in this speech, even though that day he was a little under the weather. And this happened just a few miles from us. Mm -hmm. Still, I'm very happy we're finally getting an MLK statue in this damn city. Yeah, it, it's it's probably but, 50 years overdue. But he says uh, the or first 40? the first thing you do to love your enemies is realize people may not like you, and it might be for reasons based in bigotry and hatred and these snap judgments and stereotypes, but what you have to do, what you have power over, is look in the mirror and ask yourself, what about me do people not like? Because there might be something there. And to constantly blame others uh, for why things are bad, to constantly blame the human race for why your life is bad, it might be because of something somebody else did, but often... If even if you're deserted, alone on some island, like it's castaway, you're talking to a stupid volleyball, and life is not easy in that right, situation. Right. And so it's looking inward first. And on the other side of that, you don't want to look for validation necessarily externally. I think that is a. It's, it might be fun in games for a little while, and maybe that's just my bias talking, where I don't. I actually feel awkward when people recognize my voice out in public. And give me compliments. I appreciate it, but I feel weird about yeah. it. And maybe that's my social anxiety, or maybe I'm just like Neil Peart without the amazing drum skills. <laughs> but I, I genuinely get shy, and like, and it's not even. I'm not. It's not a humble brag. I'm not yeah. that humble. It's more like I, I just feel weird when I get that validation from somebody. My, mine, mine tends to be more what mood I'm in. Mm. Um, if I've just got like. People don't understand. By noon, I don't really want to talk to people. I've just talked for three straight hours yeah. on the radio, mm -hmm. sometimes loudly. Sometimes I've stressed my voice or I've worn myself out. 12 o'clock rolls around. All I want to do is eat and either go start working or maybe kick my feet back up a little bit, eat a chocolate bar, you know, watch the TV or listen to the radio for a little bit, I, you know, until about 2. And then I kind of come back out of my shell. Um, and so if it's between noon and two and someone, you know, if I go to a restaurant or, right. or whatever and somebody, hey, uh, you know, or somebody's waiting outside, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. You know, this this is really the worst time of the day to talk to me. Oh, I, I and can I've, relate. I've, I've been kind of rude to people at times, like, all right, thanks, you know, but 
you know, so that in that situation, I'm sort of irritated. But you know, four or five in the afternoon, or if I'm out on the weekend yeah. or whatever, my family and somebody's it's 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 it's. I actually kind of enjoy it, not because it makes me feel good or anything, but because you you feel like sometimes you get on here and you feel like no one's on the other side of the microphone. You're just talking to yourself, exactly. And it's nice to hear from people from all walks of life who come up and say you provide a little bit of joy in my life from time to time. But I've seen you out and about. Like, you're more of an extrovert than I am. Oh, yeah. I'm way more extroverted than you are. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't consider myself an extrovert. Oh, really? No. Um, I No. I, I'm kind of middle of the road. I thought... I, I fancy you have the gift well, you, of Well, you're pretty introverted, though. I'm very introverted. You know, not in a microphone, but you, no. get, you get out in public and you kind of sit sit by yourself well, maybe that goes into... Maybe it is all about me. That when I'm on stage or I have the spotlight on me, and like, everybody's watching. Yeah. Time to open up. Yeah. Time to let the peacock feathers, feathers, <laughs> feathers flow. Uh, well, it is Valentine's Day, and it is. I don't know if uh, this is y'all's choice of bedroom music, and I'm talking about y'all generally out there, but it's a little too campy for me. I just start laughing. Also, like somebody handed me the Kama Sutra, yeah, and said to read this. Mm. I started reading it out loud, and I couldn't stop laughing. It's so campy and on the nose. Yeah, that may be a little much, the Kama Sutra. Yeah, it's like, oh, come on. Like, let's just do yoga together. <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to have to hit a quick break. My guest alongside me is Baron Coleman. Coming back, I'm going to give you a glimpse inside my head. As told through the Beastie Boys. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Alongside me is Baron Coleman on this steamy Valentine's Day. And we will not talk about what we talked about during the break. No, no, no. That's not appropriate. Lest everybody blush and... Yeah, true adult conversations aren't allowed in public. (laughs) They always have to be private. But uh, I promised folks a minute inside my head. Yeah. Or a little bit. Well, I found a, a song. Or people, you know, Joey, what are you thinking about today? And sometimes I'm thinking about, oh, are we seeing the slow sleepwalk into World War III? And when it comes to Syria with Israel there and Hezbollah backed by Iran and even a NATO ally, Turkey's jumping in. And then my mind jumps to, but what about China? Is China doing anything? Are we going to have problems in the South China Sea or the Sea of Japan? And all these, there's a lot of natural gas and natural resources, trillions worth in there. No wonder people are going to fight about it. But then Russia's a crazy <laughs> crazy thing but when all that goes out of my head this is what i'm thinking about <laughs> happy valentine's day why does this not surprise me <laughs> i had no idea where you were going with this I wish people could see me dancing right now. Oh, that's that's hot. That's that's oh, hip. Yeah. That's some hip stuff there. What is that? The hand jive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's one thing they call it. Back in the day, there was this girl around the way. Now I got into um, per uh, 
Brandon's suggestion. Brandon's working on Yo now. Yeah. Classic hip hop. I said, dude, I am just ignorant of like the origins. Like I know some hip hop songs. I was a DJ at Fun Zone and Skater Rink. I had to play a lot. But uh, he suggested, and if folks are actually curious about the origins of hip hop, it's an incredible story. Uh, it's called Hip Hop Evolution. It's on Netflix now. It's just a four part thing, about 48 minute episodes. It's fantastic. What, so, in short, give me the elevator version. Uh, it starts off in New York. And, like, who was the first, say, disco DJ who started talking over uh, tracks? And even if you go to those guys, they say, no, there's this one dude who did this one novelty song. Or there's another guy who was, like, a poet. He wasn't a rapper. He was a poet. And he had live instrumentation behind him. So they're, like origins that go way, way back. Um, and some people say the flow, like the rhyming and the rapping goes way back, especially in black culture. Like, think of Muhammad Ali and yeah. like people wanting to rhyme and always say the coolest stuff. But it really happens in New York where disco and DJs putting on disco parties start mixing songs. So like Grandmaster Flash, he was very annoyed with disco DJs. They would either, they'd have you know, two turntables, two vinyl records spinning. They'd fade out the one and bring in the other one. Right. They used to do that at Fun Zone. And it wasn't vinyl. It was We had a CD player. They could do that with two different CDs. Right. Or sometimes they would do what it was like a hard break, where they'd hit the break beat on a certain disco or funk song, and it would just be like noise. <laughs> and then the other song would come in. It wasn't smooth at all. Right. So Grandmaster Flash like, how can I make this smooth? So he takes, uh, say, two vinyls of the same exact song, like Good Times. Right. Good Times. And he realized that, oh, okay, I don't want to touch the vinyl itself, but one day I did, and it stopped perfectly. Trying to lift up the arm, it would either slip out of my hand and get all messy. So he realized, oh, if I just touch the vinyl and stop it, it stops exactly where I want. So what he did is he finds the break, like the... 10 seconds, 20 seconds of the song he wants to repeat. And he took a crayon and drew a line. And then he allowed the crayon, a purple crayon, to move along the tread to the exact length of the song on the vinyl record. Mm. And he would do that on both of them to where he could have it stop and start and he got so good touching the center of the vinyl, not the black part, the label, to where it sounds like something somebody would make in a computer. Really? Remarkable. But it it goes from there to where it's more than just disco parties to guys actually start rapping over stuff. History of Run DMC. That's kind of what I thought it would be, a DJ playing, yeah. and then he would, because creativity eventually takes over, if you're sitting there, you got a microphone to talk to the crowd, and you're playing music, during one of the breaks, you might start rapping or, yeah. or rhyming over the instrumentation. That's kind of where I thought you were going to... Well, and a guy in the documentary made a fantastic point. In this Black History Month, he uh, pointed out this is what a lot of black artists have done, no matter the technology, is they take something that has a specific purpose, like a turntable to play a vinyl record, and then you don't just play records on it, you start to play the technology right. and use the technology as an instrument. Muddy Waters did this with the guitar, and all the old blues players did this with guitars. Um, the saxophone, it was kind of a classical instrument. It becomes like the lead instrument in jazz. They would come without the preconceived classical notions. And like Grandmaster Flash story, to go back to it, he said it was a perfect storm. When he was a kid, like a little kid, he loved taking electronics apart. 
and putting them back together to where he like scrounged up a bunch of stuff in the dump and put together his own stereo. So he loved that, but he said he also had another phase in life where he loved watching wheels spin. Oh, really? Whether it was a bicycle wheel, it just fascinated him. So you put those two together, you have a vinyl too. Turned perfect it. Perfect DJ in the yeah. making. But it, it and then the documentary gets to the Beastie Boys. They're like, okay, we have a really good cult following here in New York and a few folks around the country, a few DJs. Um, it's a mostly black audience. Uh, pretty much all black, except for the punk scene, the punk white folks in New York. And they realized, oh, these folks want to give us a chance. And their kind of punk is to, like, arena rock what hip-hop is to, like, disco. Right. So they're like, well, we're, in the same, we're on the same team. That's where the Beastie Boys come from. That's where a lot of that stuff comes from. Is like these punk scene white guys hook up, and Def Jam is uh, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. Right, yeah. And it's just such a cool story. I only got through three of them last night. They're now going to go to West Coast and Dr. Dre. And all that That's interesting. I, 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 I am a little fascinated with that because it's a truly uh, American style of music. It, it really doesn't exist, or it didn't exist outside of the United States. I mean, it's, 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 like, it's like jazz. I mean, it, it's, right. it's American. Well, and sampling has taken over music. Uh, the guy did Uptown Funk with Bruno yeah. Mars, Mark Ronson. Yeah. He did a great TED Talk where he said, you might think it's stealing, whatever. No, it's taken over. Yeah. There's a, and technology makes it easier. There's a classic hip-hop track by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick called Lottie Dottie. Yeah. And, uh, and four and a half minutes. Come on, man, doggy style. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that four and a half minute song, which is essentially got beatboxing. Yeah. Incredible. And a guy rapping over it and occasionally getting into a singing hook. It's been sampled like 500, 600 times. Different parts of it. by But us. none better than Snoop Doggy Dog on Doggy Style. Mm-hmm. His Lottie Dottie was the... I'm sorry, that was better than the original. Yeah, but Biggie's hypnotized? No, I, I mean... Sometimes your words just hypnotize me. Yeah. That's right off oh, Lottie Dottie. Uh, what, was the, uh, what was that famous drum beat... Uh, it was the uh, as the Amen break beat. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's the most sampled, yeah, uh, a sampled and used and borrowed clip in music history. It's been, they've tracked it to like over a thousand different songs. Have used this, uh, and it's it's really a fascinating thing. There's a little video online about it, and they go through sort of the history of it. It's this little undiscovered thing, and some and it just sounded cool, and it was actually kind of a mistake when he did it. And then he said, "Hey, that sounds pretty cool," and he kept doing it. So then he did it on an album. And everybody yeah. took it. Every drum, every drummer uses it, even if they don't know what it's called. It's a yeah. little drum technique, and every every single person uses it. Well, and, and it's, it's it's made it into everything. But out of that base, out of that basic foundation, you get so much variation. Yeah. And it's uh, I mean, not all hip hop and rap music is good by any means. Just like you no, go most back to, isn't. We go back to old pop music or old rock music. It's yeah. crap. Some of it. Yeah, my, my, it's like everything. Most music is bad. Mm. Um. I'll give you an example. They leave CDs and records down there for us to take. Yeah. Um, there were there were a couple good albums in that stack. You know, I got I grabbed a future album. I got a Future Islands album that was good. Um, uh, there there were a couple things, but most of it, if you were to open it up and just play it, is awful. Right. Uh, most music is bad. 
you just don't hear all the bad stuff on the radio very often. Well, because and, by the time it gets on the radio, somebody thinks it's okay. Right. So there's, I mean, you got to judge it in, I think, any genre by its best representatives. Well, I mean, that's a good rule for life. Judge a political party by its best representatives, unless you're in the middle of a political fight. Yeah. And then judge them by their worst and craziest. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I've just gone down this rabbit hole of sampling. It wants me... I want to get back to making music again with sampling as sort of a base. For instance, I knew the Beastie Boys. I knew a lot of their popular songs, and I played this on Monday. But I put on License to Ill, their debut album from 86, and this is the first sound I hear, and I go, oh, I know exactly where that's from. Oh, yeah. That's uh, when the levee breaks. Yeah. And then it comes in, and they're taking from Black Sabbath's Sweetly. That, hold on, that's... Someone else needs that. It wasn't just... Anyway. Yeah, but that's like, oh, I could do that. And so here's my goal, folks. Because I can't um, take, say, something like Teddy Pendergrass seriously in the bedroom. Like, it just, it makes me laugh. And because I like, I have too close of like a relationship, like musically, with the work of Prince, to where I can't even put that on in the bedroom. Like it's too campy. It, it, it's too it, well, you get you get a uh... well. Instead of being in the mood, it distracts me. It makes me think of being like a sad sixteen-year-old listening to Purple Rain for the first time. <laughs> like I can't. That's not putting me in the right mood. Not at all. Uh, but here's my goal. I'm setting for myself. I'm setting it today. Mm-hmm. I might fail, but I don't think I will. When it comes to Valentine's Day 2019, a year from today, I will create my own bedroom mix from my own songs I have mastered. Now I just have to find somebody to come to my studio. Because I am single. <laughs> May not be next year. Was that, no, pit- you know. is that too pathetic? No, it wasn't pathetic at all. No, Look, it wasn't I mean, pathetic. No, it's just, maybe that's the introvert in me too, like... Here's some chocolate and some flowers. It's sweet, but if somebody gave me chocolate and flowers, I'm like, okay, thanks. But it doesn't like... Yeah, but you're a male. It doesn't have the same effect. Really? No. There's that big of a difference? Oh, man, yeah. Like, you're, you're upsetting like a lot of consensus at the universities now. Oh, let me tell you. There is a total fundamental difference between men and women. They're, they're not, there's not even that much crossover. They may as well be like bananas... And and men could be like a Mustang GT or something. I mean, it's just they're totally different creatures. They they don't they don't like the same stuff. They have very little crossover. Um, you know, it's it's just I can't even explain it. You give a man a flowers. I mean, now Elton John almost went broke buying flowers, but that's different. Well, he's Elton. He had a lot of femininity. He's too. a knight. Yeah, but most most men, you you show up with a bouquet of flowers, mm. they're gonna think you're weird. <laughs> I mean, I'll just be honest. They're going to think you're weird. They're, they're going to doubt your sanity. Um, I said this line last... I love chocolate. I love chocolate. You like chocolate? Oh, my gosh. I eat a lot of chocolate. See, don't get me chocolate. Get me... like. Somebody. But if you buy me chocolate, that's weird. <laughs> my buddy's g- girlfriend said, Joe, it's your birthday. I want to make you something. Because she likes yeah. making dinner and likes making treats and whatnot. And, I, and you know, you'd think, I want a steak dinner. Yeah. Or I, want, I went... I typed in a text. I want savory horseradish dip. 
<laughs> the weirdest request ever. You know what, though? That's that's actually that's sounds a, delicious right sounds now. I'm good. starving. You asked me what I actually wanted. I'm going to give you an honest answer. It's Ash Wednesday. I haven't eaten very much today. I'm starving. Oh. Savory horseradish would be wonderful. Now, does the... You can't do the meat on Fridays now. Uh, not not until Easter, no. Oh, no. Uh, no meat on Fridays, no meat on Ash Wednesday. Uh, if you follow the fast ideally, hmm. you would have um, two snacks that combined are no bigger than one meal for breakfast and lunch, and you would have a meatless soup for dinner. Huh. Uh, that would be... Uh, Oh, homie, you're Catholic. You should know this. I didn't know. Uh, no, I never went to that extreme. This, th that is, that is, well, young people are exempted from the fast. Old people are exempted from the fast. Frail people are exempted from the fast. Pregnant people are exempted from the fast. So it's really, uh, you know, a white male thing. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I'm just kidding. But no, it's, um, you know, if you're if you're 14 to 65 and of good health, you're supposed to obey the fast. Yeah. Uh, ideally, I mean, unless unless there's some reason you don't want to, but. You you don't have to give up the meat all year round on Friday. Okay. That used to be a Catholic thing. Catholic Church got together and said, "All right, you know what? You can eat meat on Friday, but you should make some other sacrifice for the church." Right. Something that you can articulate, not just a, "I was a better boy today," but you know, something you can do. Um, but yeah. now, I'm giving up Lent for Lent. <laughs> I hate that. It's like oh, original. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, you know, uh, you ever heard of a guy named Monsignor Ronald Knox? No. Famous, famous priest. Uh, actually, not as famous as probably he should be, but he was an educator in England. Uh, he worked at a boys' school, and uh, they all loved him. And he was a great guy, real intellectual, wrote a lot, had a lot of in influence in a lot of people's lives. Um, Monsignor Ronald Knox would give up, and he would really give it up. His Lenten fast every year was he would drink only blended scotch, no single malt. <laughs> And he would smoke no more than 25 pipes a week. Man. So that, that was his fast. What so a sacrifice. It, and you know what? For him, it probably was. Well, and I actually got thinking about, um, and I texted it to you. I texted some jokes, too, about topics. But uh, Yeah, we're not going to talk about all that. No, no, no. Again, one of those very fun, I think, adult conversations that uh, well, we can't talk about on air. But You know what? We could do a podcast. We could stay around after this and do a yeah, podcast. Yeah, we could and do put that. A, yeah. we not could. tonight, but another night. Right. It's Valentine's Day. you got to get home. You should get home. I am going to home. Okay, good. What do you, what do you think? I'm going to go out and paint the town red on them? No. I'm just like, you got to get home. It was just, it was me saying that I understand and I don't want to steal all your time. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um, I was thinking about, because I, I consider myself not like a devotee, but I'm very intrigued by the work of Epicurus. And he's considered a hedonist because he thinks the value of, of morality is pleasure pain principle. But he's not like unrefined about it. He's like, prudence needs to guide you, temperance needs to guide you in this. And so if you think about that scheme, you end up having to ask the question that's very similar to, I think, uh, what a lot of Christians do, is what pain and what suffering, and I'm not talking about the stuff that comes anyway, like you're hungry or tragedy happens, like a natural disaster. What? No. Your own choice in the realm of human action. What pain and what suffering is worth taking on for a greater good? Uh, well, again, as a Catholic, I'm sure you've studied the concept of redemptive suffering, but that's more in the in the passive suffering, things that happen to you. Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily things you take on. Like Job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he, and, and he had moments of, of brilliance and moments of failure in, in that suffering. Um, but, and I'm not necessarily advocating self-flagellation or anything, but, but uh, penance 
has a and, and penitence has a, a great rich deep history in the Christian tradition where people would um, would physically mar themselves right uh, or at least temporarily physically inflict some sort of pain you know put a rubber band on your wrist and snap it yeah uh, hit yourself on the back with a ruler or something you know um, I'm not down with that well no but you know I mean I mean something like because it is Valentine's Day the total and utter suffering and agony of being in love. But it's worth it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> no, but really, L- love has its ups and downs, right? Well, and, but also think about like a love for a child. In a way, when you bring a kid into the world, it's the best gift that you'll ever get, and they give more to you, I think, than uh, you give to them. But it's also right with anxiety, rife with anxiety and yeah. and worries, and you might have you know something might happen to them. That's going to be incredibly painful, and yet it's worth it. Yeah, there's not there's nothing more worth it than that. I, I can assure you, uh, so much so that we've now done it seven times. Uh, so I, I obviously, there's some there's some added value there. No, I mean I understand. What, now I understand more what you're saying. Now, you know, why would you pursue things that may provide pleasure when they also provide a great deal of pain? Right. Uh, and love is the perfect example. You know, but can you know the highs if you've never known the depths? Of, of despair and hell. I mean, you know, your life would be fairly robotic. Use a, use a child's example. You mentioned children. Um, we give our children ice cream after dinner if they, if they do a good job of eating. We don't have a clean your plate policy. That leads to obesity. I don't recommend it. But <laughs> in the event that we, like last night, I made a, or whenever it was, broccoli and rice casserole that didn't go over swimmingly with everybody. A couple of kids liked it. Most of them didn't. But if they ate a few bites of it and showed me that they weren't afraid to try something new, they got ice cream. You give a kid ice cream every single day, Yeah. ice cream means nothing. Ice cream means nothing. And I think for a lot of kids, that's one of the things that happens is there is very little suffering. It's all pleasure. And they don't know, the, they don't know that it's pleasure anymore. Well, and my point is that unnecessary suffering is unnecessary. It's figuring out what are the necessary ones. Yeah. And I think the greatest example is any sort of... Uh, any sort of love, especially the more profound types, and that's my message to y'all on Valentine's Day. Baron, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is this has been fun. We need to do it more often. Well, and after that profound moment, my mind's gone back to this. <laughs>